Sounds of history. I am most happy to be asked to come here today, tonight, and talk to you about sound. If you are in love, you always like to talk about the object of your love. And I am in love with sound. Of course, love is blind. <laughs> Genève Monde at the crossroads of history. Hello. And welcome, this is Sounds of History, the podcast of GenèveMonde.ch on the history of international Geneva. And thanks for joining the community of GenèveMonde.ch. Hello, Véronique. Hello, David. Today's podcast is dedicated to the history of the European Organization for Nuclear Research, better known by its acronym CERN. It is also the subject of our November thematic dossier, which can be found on GenèveMonde.ch. So in this special file, we talk a lot about the creation of CERN, the role played by physicists, many of whom were involved in the research on the atomic bomb during the Second World War, such as Pierre Auger, one of the founding fathers of CERN, and the very strong links between the CERN project and International Geneva. CERN is still considered today as a scientific and political success. The members of CERN have largely contributed to forging this idealized image of CERN. In the excerpt we just heard at the beginning of this podcast, we hear Victor Frédéric Weisskopf, who was director general of CERN between 1961 and 1965. He talks about his love for CERN and the ideal of life at CERN, where the world's nationalities live side by side in the greatest serenity. But CERN is also a history of criticism, opposition and social protest. This is the lesser known aspect of CERN's history that we are going to talk about with you today, Veronique. Absolutely, David. And this podcast promises some surprises. Thanks to the richness of the archives we have in Geneva, we can offer for the first time a more critical history of CERN. With the help of a selection of sound archives from the CERN archives, the RTS, the Swiss Public Broadcaster, and the Archive Contestataire in Carouge, where you can find a lot of archives on social movements of the second half of the 20th century, our listeners will be able to discover some of the lesser-known aspects of the history of CERN. Exactly. Let's start with our first sound archive. I mentioned Pierre Auger, who was one of the founders of CERN, and we have a sound archive from the RTS archives, uh, which is an interview given to the radio station Espace 2 on December 23rd, 1986. I suggest we listen to it. In the opinion of European physicists, there had to be a movement in the direction of the construction of instruments, a movement that they would accept, they would have to agree to collaborate. A good number of them were afraid, they said this is not possible. Sounds of History, the podcast of GenèveMonde.ch That was Pierre Auger in 1986 for the RTS Espace 2. When we study the history of CERN, we often read that it was created to respond to a scientific need that was widely shared within the physics community and that it should allow Europe to fight against American scientific competition. But listening to Auger, we can feel that CERN was not unanimous even among scientists. Indeed, David, the CERN project, which started in 1949, first within the European movement and then at UNESCO, where 
Auger held a post of director of the scientific division was contested by certain physicists. The work of the historian Dominique Pestre, a specialist in the history of science and co-author of a multi-volume history of CERN, allows us to look back at these criticisms. And in the genevemont.ch online file devoted to CERN, you can listen to a five-part interview with Dominique Pestre to learn all about the foundations of CERN and the discussions that preceded them. Yeah, indeed. So CERN aroused a number of fears among physicists who were frightened by the ambition of the project and the technological gigantism involved in the development of high-energy physics. It was the heart of the CERN project, you know, desired in particular by Pierre Auger to study the composition of matter. And to do this, it was necessary to have large particle accelerators. This was the project of the Intersecting Storage Rings, or ISR, the world's first Hadron Collider in service from 1971 to 1984, then the Proton Super Synchrotron commissioned in 1976, then the LEP, the Large Electron Positron Collider, inaugurated in 1989, which, with its 27 kilometer circumference, was the most important European project. And then we have the LHC, or the Large Hadron Collider, the most powerful accelerator in the world, commissioned in 2008 and estimated to cost 9 billion euros. It is understandable that some people thought that physicists had caught la folie des grandeurs. Yes, <laughs> especially since it was a certain type of physics, you know. Not everyone was doing high energy physics at that time. The CERN project was initially supported by a handful of scientists. There were nuclear physicists like Lev Kowarski and Peter Preisberg in Switzerland who fostered the project. But CERN was above all the project of physicists specialized in the study of cosmic rays, such as Pierre Auger in France and Eduardo Amaldi in Italy. But when the CERN project was presented in 1951 at the conference of the International Union of Pure and Applied Physics in Copenhagen, Auger and Amaldi understood that the project did not have unanimous support. Genève Monde, the shared history of international Geneva. So, who were the scientists opposed to CERN? Thanks to the work of Dominique Pest, we know that the opposition came in particular from the Danish physicists, Niels Bohr and Hans Kramers, who considered the CERN project unfeasible given the costs involved in the gigantic machines envisaged. Criticism was also voiced in government circles in Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands and Denmark, mainly because of the costs involved in the project. We should not forget, David, that we were at the end of the Second World War and that most national laboratories were short of resources and manpower. So if I understand correctly, it all came down to a question of money. The financial argument was obviously important, but it was not the only one. Bohr and Kramers also had an alternative project for a European laboratory in Copenhagen and even proposed abandoning the idea of a large accelerator. Kramers believed that Bohr's laboratory was best suited to a project of European ambition. 
Maybe here it's worth mentioning Bohr's national and international prestige, which made him a key figure for any nuclear physics project in Europe. This proposal for a European laboratory in Copenhagen met with positive echoes, notably from the British physicist James Chadwick, who was also skeptical of the CERN project as it had been elaborated within UNESCO by Auger. There were also political arguments to consider, in particular the question of British support, which could decide to foster the Kramers and Bohr project through Chadwick rather than Auger's project. The physicists from the northern European countries, the only ones opposed to the Sun project? No. In fact, in France, there was also Frédéric Joliot-Curie, who was a French communist physicist and who was director of the French Atomic Energy Commission between 1946 and 1950. Frédéric Joliot-Curie refused to foster the project under the pretext that it was fostered by the Americans. So here we can see the logic of the Cold War, which weighed on the positioning of the French actors with regard to the CERN project. Finally, what made the project accepted and the convention creating CERN signed by 11 European states at UNESCO in Paris on July the 1st, 1953? Mm. I would say that it was mainly thanks to Pierre Auger, who spared no effort to defuse the opposition. Auger knew that the only way to convince governments to foster his project was to present a united scientific front. In his negotiations, Auger could count on the support of Amaldi and Preisberg. But beyond the counter-proposal of Kramers and Bohr, it must be said that the project for a European laboratory and a large accelerator met with a rather favorable response in Western Europe. At the time, there was a feeling that Europe was lagging behind the Americans and a project like CERN could allow Europe to catch up. This feeling was very strong, for example, in Italy and Belgium, but also in France, which explains why the project was finally adopted at UNESCO in Paris. The startup of an accelerator of particles at Brookhaven National Laboratory in the United States in 1952 also played a role. And the fact that on the American side there was support and enthusiasm for a European laboratory certainly helped convince governments that were reluctant to consider the technological and human costs of the project. It is fascinating to learn that the scientific opportunity of a large particle accelerator project was not shared by all European physicists in the 50s, and more broadly, that the construction of international scientific cooperation requires compromises and negotiations like any other area of international cooperation. Yes, David, this is indeed the conclusion we have reached here. The history of CERN reminds us that if the knowledge of the universe can be a universal aspiration. Its concrete realization is the result of negotiations and arbitrations, which on the one hand place scientists in opposition with some of their colleagues, and which on the other hand push them to enter into close negotiations with the political world. Sounds of History Genève Monde at the crossroads of history. 
The installation of CERN in Geneva in 1954, the great adventure began. And in the decades that followed, CERN made major discoveries in the field of particle physics. We, of course, remember the discovery of the Higgs boson in 2012. And a number of Nobel Prize winners worked in CERN laboratories. CERN is still today a major player in fundamental nuclear research in Europe and in the world. Today, CERN has a considerable impact on the economy of the country, on the economy of the canton of Geneva, through the many industries that depend on physics research. I would name a few, telecommunications, electricity and pharma. But with the development of new uh, particle accelerator, new criticisms are emerging that seek to alert public opinion to the environmental and health impact of CERN's activities. Véronique, in the course of your research on labor issues related to CERN, you have been able to study this history of social protest and you have worked, in particular with your students at the University of Geneva, on the archives of Lucie Lanouse, a CFDT trade unionist from the région of Gex, Pays Gex, in France. Let's listen to the first take out of that sound archive where we hear Lucie Lanouse speak. I was struck by the legendary and mythological side of everything that was said about the CERN. When we were confronted with the whole of the CERN at the union level, following difficulties in the living and working conditions of the people who were building the second ring, which was called 300 GEV at that time. That's how I got to know the CERN. Until then, I had swallowed all of these kinds of stories with admiration. I read Scientific American, faithfully trying to understand, appreciate, and admire it. I thought it was wonderful. All the people around where I live, in the paid jacks in France, employees of the CERN, said that it was wonderful and that their work had a particular meaning for them. Lucille Anouz, recorded in 1985 in this conference. So, Véronique, can you contextualize this sound archive for us? Yes, so this archive comes from the Archive Contestataire in Carouge. And I would like uh, to thank here Frédéric Desus, uh, head of the Archive Contestataire, for having authorized us to use this archive for our podcast. The excerpt we have just heard is a conference from 1985 in which Lucie Lanouz, Pierre Lehmann, a Swiss physicist and nuclear engineer who later became an anti-nuclear scientist, and Jacques Greenwald, a science historian at the Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva participated. These three personalities are brought together by the association Femme, Féminisme et Recherche, a feminist association, on the occasion of the release of their book La Quadrature du CERN, which they wrote together with André Sponner, a particle physicist who worked at CERN. So, Véronique, in the excerpt we just heard, Lucie Lanouz talks about the idealized image of CERN. What was the problem in relation to uh, the work issues? Yes, indeed. The intentions of the authors of this book were to deconstruct the image of CERN as a place of science that would be pure and whose sole purpose would be to the quest for knowledge. 
Through the approach, the authors called for a critical look at CERN, but above all for its inclusion in society by questioning the impact of its activities. Their objective was to demystify CERN and to place its history in the larger history of science, politics and international relations and even in environmental history. For a long time, you know, CERN has presented itself as a different organization because it was a scientific organization and still is, where the laws of the division of labor do not apply. CERN has long defended and perhaps still defends the idea that scientific activity is kind of a superior activity preserved from all conflicts. But this is totally false. And the publication of this book was intended to demonstrate this. So as a CFDT trade unionist in the PGX near Geneva, Lucie Lanouz is mobilizing against CERN to denounce the working conditions. Listen to a second take. Il y a un petit problème chez vous. Vous n'avez peut-être pas perçu, mais il faudrait quand même faire quelque chose parce que pour ceux qui sont manœuvres. I said to CERN that they had a problem. I said you may not have noticed, but those who are workers are not well. I realized that they didn't know what to do with it, and they didn't want to talk about it. And finally, they didn't give a damn. So the research tools were useful for CERN, but the way they were operated, the way they were maintained, well, they didn't want to know. Finally, the research itself had total priority over the life of a man, over the life of another man. What were the problems of labor at CERN at that time? In the years 1970-1980, several labor conflicts and strikes of temporary and subcontracted workers shook CERN and Lucille Hanous was involved in some of these struggles. The problem of subcontracting at CERN was then revealed to the public by the workers' strikes, which were also reported in the local press and the trade unions on both sides of the French-Swiss border. Among the Swiss trade unions were the Syntec Union, the Geneva Union of Technical Employees, the Geneva Section of the Christian Union of Metalworkers, the Swiss Federation of Typographers and the Union of Civil Servants. On the one hand, they will take the side of the strikers and denounce the working conditions, work accidents and occupational diseases that affect subcontractors and statutory workers. And on the other hand, they will push CERN's management to recognize this problem and to sit down at the negotiating table to improve the working condition of this category of workers who are particularly threatened. Threatened. So what were the risks that threatened these workers, Veronique? There are several types of risks, David. First of all, there is job insecurity. Temporary workers and subcontractors are generally paid less and have fixed-term contracts that give the company the right to fire them within 48 hours. Could you imagine that? Mm -hmm. The problem of the salaries is aggravated by the fact that these people are not systematically recognized as travailleurs frontaliers, meaning uh, people working in neighboring countries, which allows companies to pay them well below Swiss salaries. And this was the case for the CNET cleaners employed at CERN, who organized a strike in 1980 to denounce their working conditions. We call that strike la grève du ballet, the broom strike. Yeah, and these strikers were all women. 
And moreover, in the companies that employ them, there was often no collective labor agreement. The companies did as they pleased and did not hesitate, for example, to forget to pay social benefits to these workers and unemployment contributions. These workers are very often exposed to overwork, accidents and illness. On the SPS construction site in the 1970s, the mechanical workers were exposed to accidents, which were frequent, but also to the silica dust, which was released from the construction site and which is responsible for bronchopulmonary cancers in exposed workers. Finally, those who worked indoors, where there was machinery, could also be exposed to radioactivity, and the use of subcontractors aggravates the problem insofar as, according to the rules laid down by the CERN management, it is the responsibility of the contracted company to inform the worker of the risks and to form him, and there are doubts as to its ability and willingness to do so. The radiation protection policy at CERN was therefore unsatisfactory and maybe even dangerous from this point of view. So you're listening to Sounds of History, uh, a podcast made by Genève Monde with Véronique Stenger and me, David Glazer. Uh, let's listen to another sound. Lucie Lanouz mentions in this coming take the lack of unionization at CERN and other international organizations as one of the problems related to outsourcing. There was indeed a rather difficult union activity. I discovered that for the civil servants, there were texts within their contracts that said that these people should not be unionized or have union activities. That it is the same in all international organizations and it seems normal because it is still a mythology. We find people of different nationalities there. They are there for fraternity, for good understanding, for harmony. It is quite obvious that we are not going to talk about things as dirty and degrading as what is unionized or political. What was the situation in the international organizations? Um, I'm sorry, but I can't give you a global answer, of course. The question of trade unionism is posed differently depending on each international organization. So let's stay at CERN and look at, at what were the problems. The problems were the following. First of all, CERN, like all the other international organizations based in Geneva, has a special status. And in concrete terms, this means that Swiss labor law and, in the case of CERN, French labor law, do not apply to international civil servants. However, they have the possibility of recourse to the ILO administrative tribunal in the event of a dispute involving CERN. Second, CERN has a staff association which defends the rights of certain civil, civil servants but not of subcontracted and temporary workers who in 1978 numbered about 1,400 out of 3,500 civil servants, so roughly 30% of the workforce. CERN is therefore not responsible for any disputes between workers and private companies, even though the latter are mandated by CERN and CERN encourages massive recourse to subcontracting. It is the problem of responsibility that arises here. The workers then um, have no choice but to use the labor law of the country where the company employing them is located. And the last problem is the precariousness in which these workers find themselves and which has already been mentioned. 
They are workers who can be bent over backwards, who can be dismissed very easily, and above all, who can be paid less. The local section of the CFDT in the PJX denounced these practices in a brochure published in 1975 on CERN's employment policy, in which the economic gains of the subcontracted companies were denounced to the detriment of working conditions. So, Veronique, how did the CERN Staff Association react to this problem of subcontracting? It's difficult to say, you know, with the current state of my knowledge, but in the extract we just heard, Lucille Hanou says that trade unionism was frowned upon at CERN. And one can imagine that the Staff Association itself was experiencing difficulties. The fear of the impact of social conflicts on the contributions of the member states may have been an issue here. What we do know is that the staff association was not part of the support committee uh, for the 1978 strike involving 54 mechanical workers employed at the SPS construction site. Although it did foster this action by organizing collections, as did the UN staff union, which organized a solidarity collection and took a contribution from its own funds for the strikers. It's a bit amazing, Veronique, to discover the stories of labor disputes at CERN. I learned things that I didn't know about, and I hope that those listening are as interested as I was in listening to you. Uh, to finish our podcast, I have a little surprise, last okay. sound archive <laughs> that I believe will also interest you. Let's listen to that sound. J'ai parlé des possibilités de découverte infinie, inimaginable. I spoke of infinite, unimaginable possibilities of discovery. I said this in favor of the LEP. It can be turned in against the LEP insofar as these possibilities are infinite and unimaginable. It doesn't mean that they are all good. No one in the world can say that. While one boasts a lot about the infinite perspectives that it covers, one seems to say that these perspectives can only be good for progress of man. It is obviously false. It is a mistake. So, do you recognize the voice of this sound source? Yeah, I think this is Denis de Rougemont. Well, you're right. 100%. <laughs> it is an interview found in the archives of uh, the RTS on September the 17th, 1983, during the 1 p.m. news, to be precise. As you know, Denis de Rougemont played an important role in the creation of CERN. But in this interview, we can feel that he's less comfortable with the development of Le LEP. Does this mean that Denis de Rougemont has disowned his own child? Oh no, I don't think so. Um, I would say that in this excerpt, Denis de Rougemont expresses above all a concern about the LEP construction site, whose scientific raison d'être he questions. Okay, but behind this criticism of the LEP, Isn't there a criticism more general of CERN? No, I would say that it is a criticism of the techno-scientific logic that pushes for the permanent innovation of machines, even though this does not necessarily meet the needs of society. You know, each new CERN installation gains in energy 
in speed as well as in territory, all for an unstoppable scientific reason. The smaller the objects we want to explore, the higher the energies they require. But CERN's installations also have a real impact and the subsoil, the farmland, the forests, the water and the cities around CERN are as if suspended from the evolution of the CERN big machine. Denis de Rougemont, who was a Swiss intellectual, never disowned CERN. He was always attached to this institution, which embodies Europe. Denis de Rougemont was a convinced European. He played an essential role in the creation of CERN through the European movement and the European Center for Culture, as demonstrated by the historian Nicolas Stenger, who wrote his thesis on Denis de Rougemont and who has published this thesis in 2015. So Denis de Rougemont was the spiritual father of CERN. So I don't think he's denying here this paternity. Without calling into question his attachment to CERN, Denis de Rougemont nevertheless highlighted a certain number of risks linked to the LEP, the LEP construction site. I suggest that we listen to a second take of this interview. When the opposants to LEP say that the possibilities of dégâts to the environment The opponents of the LEP say there are possibilities of damage to the environment, to the animal and to the human population, to the water it is vital for the country. These possibilities are infinite. Donc nous sommes en présence de deux incertitudes finales. We are in the presence of two final uncertainties on a problem of immense dimension. It is a new situation in which mankind of the 20th century find itself. Créer des possibilités qui risquent d'anéantir la vie humaine, chose qui n'avait jamais existé avant. They have created possibilities that risk to annihilate the human life, which is new and which had not existed before half this century, can be said. The problems of the atom is that it led to the atomic war. That was considerable. And today we are going towards consequences that are always more extensive, more consequential, more irreversible in the physical and natural sciences, but also in the economy, sociology, biology, medicine, philosophy, religion. Finally, everything goes through it. Every time there is a project of this kind, like the LEP project, for example, there are worse, much more dangerous ones, like the project that is already acting on genes, on the very formation of living bodies. Every time there is a project of this kind, submit it to what I would like to call a European Research Council. Sounds of history. Genèvemonde.ch Denis de Rougemont in 1983 on the RTS. For Denis de Rougemont, the LAP construction site raised a certain number of environmental problems in the PageX, absence of study on the potential radiations, impact of the excavation works on the landscape of the PageX, and on the workforce called to carry them out. This is an environmental criticism of Sun's activities, isn't it? Yes, David, and I think that we can link this criticism to the ecologism of Denis de Rougemont. Well, it must be said that at that time, Denis de Rougemont uh, was living in the PHX, and it is therefore normal that he was worried about the consequences of this gigantic construction site. 
But it is also true that Denis de Rougemont was an ecologist and anti-nuclear. In 1977, he published his last essay, L'Avenir et notre affaire. The future is our business, if we can translate it like this. The same year as the Cremalville demonstrations. This book is an anti-nuclear plea. Denis de Rougemont was also co-author of the Geneva Appeal of 1978, a kind of manifesto that demanded a public debate on Superphenix, a nuclear power plant in France. The excerpt we have just heard allows us to highlight the specificity of Denis de Rougemont's ecology, fundamentally democratic and fundamentally European, in the excerpt, he calls for the responsibility of scientists in the face of the potential exploitation of their discoveries by the state, industry and the army. Denis de Rougemont militates for the creation of European Research Council, bringing together representatives of the different branches of culture and thus not only physicists and biologists, in order to better evaluate the benefit risk for society of large techno-scientific projects. So this environmental criticism, Veronique, does not seem to have reached CERN. But it is interesting to note that at the same time as social and environmental criticism was multiplying within CERN and around the CERN environment, the CERN management decided, and it was 1977, on a project to publish an official history of CERN. I can't help but think that the social and environmental protest of the time may have had something to do with it. Yes, maybe, David. Uh, and I think that the questions raised by Denis de Rougemont are not only of historical interest. They are in perfect resonance with the current debates on technoscience and nuclear energy and the need expressed by many groups to give meaning to scientific projects, to democratize them and make science accountable. These different criticisms must be known and transmitted because they highlight that, one, all progress has an economic and environmental and a human cost, and progress is therefore not in itself a positive thing. And second, that we are not obliged to accept the world we live in and the risks we are exposed to. You know, many people have denounced the environmental and health costs of progress, like Lucie Lanouz or Denis de Rougemont and even André Sponer especially in the nuclear field, but they have systematically been fought and marginalized. Telling their story and the fights is a reminder that other futures were and still are possible. Don't you think? I am sure of this. Thank you so much, Veronique, for your work on that topic. Very rich. See you next month with a brand new topic. Should I tell you uh, what it's all about or should I keep it secret? <laughs> I don't know. How do you think? Uh, we'll keep it secret. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Cyril Delemer, our sound engineer. Great job. Second Floor and Pavlos Constantinou for the visual artwork of the podcast. And Patricia Polisset and Olivier Lubkeman of Second Floor for our sound imaging. 
thanks to the Radio Television Suisse, CERN, and Archive Contestataire for their precious archives. You can write to us. The email address is simple, genèvemonde at gmail.com. Genèvemonde, spelled G-E-N-E-V-E-M-O-N-D-E at gmail.com. In the meantime, be well. See you soon. See you. Thank you, David. Sounds of History, the podcast of genèvemonde.ch. genèvemonde.ch